Our desire above everything else is to honor you in our, in our prayer lives. And in order to do so, we have to fight against those things which militate against our enjoyment of prayer and our use of it to your glory and honor. We pray that you would help us uh, this day to understand a little bit more about the nature of prayer, what you desire in it, and so that as we proceed to pray before you, we might do so with confidence and knowledge and with the strengthening of your spirit to that end. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. David Urey was desperate. His wife had been severely injured in an auto accident in West Virginia. And he had been told by the doctors at the hospital that she required a, a neurosurgeon and that one was not available nearby. The best place that he could go was to Washington, D.C. He started looking. Tried to get a helicopter, tried to get a small plane, tried to get an ambulance. Couldn't find anything that could get her there quickly enough. So finally, he declared, I'm going to call the White House. And that's precisely what he did. It was a bold act. But as a result, President Nixon sent his personal helicopter to pick up David Urey's wife and fly her to a neurosurgeon in Washington, D.C., Last week we talked about the fact that we have needs and desires that we are to bring to God in prayer. That's one of the things that prayer basically is. It's bringing our needs and desires before God. Just the way David Urey did when he called the White House. He said, I have a deep need. My wife is critically injured. The president responded to his need. Much the same way that God responds to our needs when we call in prayer. God has also given us many precious promises to depend upon. It's one of the things we also explored last week. Because God bids us pray, receive the answers to our prayer on the basis of the very promises that he gives us. Otherwise, why would we ever pray? Why would we ever bother if we didn't believe what the scriptures teach? The scripture tells us that how we pray matters. It's not just a matter of of bringing deep desires to God. It's not just a matter of of hanging on his promises. But it it tells us that we're to to pray in a manner that is uh, reverent, that we are to uplift ourselves with, with praise and thanksgiving. We are to trust him. We are to come to him as people who are, uh, are deeply repentant and sorry for our sins. We are to be thankful to him. We are to be submitted to him. All these things and more, the scriptures say, are to, are to be part of who we are as men and women of prayer. So prayer requires a lot of us. And I want to look at just three things this morning that I think are really important for us to remember. They're very basic. They, in many respects, flow out of the things that we talked about last week. But they reflect some of the most important things that we need to keep before us as we come before God in prayer. The first is the need to pray fervently. Acts 12.5 says this. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. If you read the rest of the text, you find out that God released him. Right? He opened the bars of the prison doors and let Peter escape 
in response to the prayers of the church, the fervent prayers of the church. Now, being fervent doesn't mean just crying out loudly or with a particularly long and drawn-out prayer. Fervency really is an intense motion of the heart and soul that lays before God in a very real and open manner the things that concern us. It's not, it's not content to hide behind just the right words or the right phrasing or to, or to make sure that somehow we got it all put together in a nice little package that we hand to God. Being fervent, being earnest in prayer, you know, is, is sometimes messy, right? Just the way it is in real life. Sometimes passion, we stumble over ourselves. We don't get the words exactly right. But it's that intense emotion of the heart somehow just laying out before God as powerfully and as honestly as we can what it is that we need, what it is that we desire, what our hopes are, what our fears are, whatever it happens to be. They are, I I don't quite know how to put it. There's a sense in which fervency has the power to drive away everything that would distract us. You know, you know how the weakness of our own flesh, right, makes us lazy, it makes us distracted in our thinking, uh, it makes us unwilling or even we don't even want to pray, but fervency drives us to prayer. We can't help but pray. And it pushes all that stuff aside. Fervency is a beautiful thing. I mean, the passage that we read out of Genesis, right? What is Jacob doing? He's striving with God. God says, let me go. I've had enough of this. That's hard to imagine, but in human terms, that's what he was saying. Jacob says, what? I won't let you go until you bless me. It's not, I won't let you go because I'm hoping you will bless me. No, unless you bless me. He is fervent. He wants it. He will not let him go. He is clinging to God. He's pursuing him. He's wrestling with him because he must have this. And that's what fervency is all about. Now, let's face the fact that lots of people pray without any fervency whatsoever. Right? They just they, they get the laundry list out. There's nothing wrong with prayer lists. Don't get me wrong. They're good things to guide us and to help us to remain structured in our prayer. At the same time, we can be praying through them in a very mindless manner. You know, bless so-and-so, please do this, we would like that. But there's no fervency. There's no, there's no earnestness about those things. We just go through them almost as a matter of, of conscience. Like, gosh, you know, if we don't pray that, pray for those things... It'll never happen. But you know, God desires earnest prayer. He doesn't want lukewarm, slothful service in prayer. He wants literally people who feel things to bring them to him. And he hears. If you remember... The sacrifices and the incense that were burned in the temple and the tabernacle had to be ignited by what? Fire. They had to be ignited by fire. 
in many respects, our, our prayer is meant to be a flame, if you will, with fervency. Because an earnest prayer, James tells us, avails much with God. It avails much. There's a great illustration in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Of course, there are thousands of illustrations there, but this one is about the earnestness of prayer. It seems that Christiana Mercy and the, uh, the children were uh, standing at the wicker gate, and they started knocking on the gate, and uh, they wanted the gatekeeper to come. What came was a big, ugly dog growling and snarling and dripping and, you know, just showing his fangs. And, and they backed off. They, they got really nervous. Then they, they were faced with a real quandary. What should we do? If we continue to knock, this dog might get even worse. If we don't knock, the gatekeeper won't come. And so they determined that they would go back and they would knock, but this time with real fervency. They banged on the gate, and the dog started barking and coming, sure enough, and then all of a sudden the voice of the gatekeeper says, Who's there? And the dog stopped barking immediately. And there's always dogs in our lives, aren't there, that, 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 that tempt us not to be earnest, not to be fervent in our praying. And I'm going to tell you the number one thing, I think, that is that dog. And it's almost a redundancy for some other form of, I don't know my English well enough to tell you what it is actually, but it's a lack of fervency. Right? We're not fervent because we're not fervent. Now, how do you, how do you deal with that? But John Piper talks about desire and fervency regarding worship, and I think the principles that he enumerates there are are well applied to prayer. He says concerning worship, and I think concerning prayer, that there are times when we are fervent, we are earnest, we come, we we wait to overflow in praise to God. Then there are those times when we don't have that uh, earnestness and fervency, but we wish we did. And so we come hoping that he'll hear us, desiring that we were more fervent, more earnest. But then there are times, there are those times, aren't there, where we come and there's the bareness of our souls. You know what? We're not excited. We're not worked up. We're not earnest or fervent or passionate about anything. Not worship, not prayer, not our families, our work, nothing. Where does our hope lie? Where does our hope lie if, in fact, that's where we find ourselves? It is that God grants us, by his grace, A real sorrow that that's the case. And a deep, indwelling desire that it were different. In such cases, I I think one can almost say, we are fervent that we're not fervent. And God is pleased with that. 
And he will restore that fervency to us. I'm reminded of one of the easiest things that we can do on our own, from our own end, to restore fervency is to consider what will happen if we don't pray fervently about those things. Right? Consider the things that you pray for, the salvation of someone, for instance. What is the alternative to their being saved? Their eternal condemnation under the wrath of God. What is the, what is the alternative to praying for those people that you know are, are hurting? Well, if we don't pray for their healing, if we don't pray for their restoration, then they're going to continue in their misery. So if we begin to think about what the opposite is, there's something there that begins to move us back towards fervency, at least in some small measure. Now, closely related to fervency is the whole idea of praying with perseverance. Paul says, uh, when he uh, wrote to the Thessalonians, he says, pray without ceasing. Now, I'm reminded of, uh, of Sir Walter Raleigh. Sir Walter Raleigh was the great English uh, statesman and explorer who was known uh, to come to the Queen regularly for things, very regularly. He was constantly in the court asking her for more. One day he shows up, and she looks at him, and she says to him, she says, Raleigh, when will you stop begging? And Raleigh says, when your majesty stops giving. And she was so pleased with the answer, she granted his request again. We understand this in our own experience, especially those of us who have been parents. If you have young children who want something, what do they do? They tug on your sleeve, they yank on your pants or your skirt. They're constantly in your face because they want something. There's a perseverance about it. They will not let you go until they get it. It's because prayers that that persevere are prayers which stem out of an earnest, fervent desire for something. Now, perseverance in prayer, of course, means more than just being earnest and coming to God. It means being in a frame of mind in which we understand that God is always there to hear and always there to answer. And it doesn't mean that we're praying every single second of the day. But it does mean that we we will pray spontaneously if something comes to mind, or a person comes to mind, or a circumstance comes to mind. We're always ready to pray, instant in prayer, in a sense. Nehemiah prayed to God while he was talking to the king. I mean, he was one of those people who could multitask. I mean, you know what it's like. You're in a certain situation. You can conduct the business or the relationship or the conversation, whatever it happens to be, and at the same time be praying about it. Well, that's part of what it means to persevere in prayer. To be instantly ready and willing to go before God at any moment with the concerns or the needs that God has placed before us. Now, there are lots of things that we ought to persevere in prayer before. 
God for. For instance, um, besetting sins, right? Now, besetting sins, nobody really wants to face the fact that they have besetting sins. Ah, they'll acknowledge it to themselves, maybe even acknowledge it to somebody else. But to really get down and dirty about it, now, I don't, no pun intended there, they don't want to deal with God in prayer about it. Because that means getting even closer to the real issues. But it's precisely besetting sins that we need to get to God closely with, to have him dissect them for us in prayer. And to really recognize that it's, you can't just kind of ask God to forgive you for it, tell him you'll do your best, and hope it doesn't come back. It'll be back. It will be back. And the only way besetting sins go is if we persevere in prayer, not just when the besetting sin you know, raises its ugly head, but every day in between, so that God might have mercy on us and protect us and free us. We ought to be praying for the well-being of others, whether it's the church, whether it's our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. There are so many needs around us. You don't even really have to know what they are specifically sometimes. You can, you can, you can extrapolate from your own experience. Everybody's confused at times. Everybody is hurting at times. Everybody is fearful at times. Everybody is rebellious at times. Everybody is directionless at times. Everybody needs Christ. Everybody needs the peace of the gospel. Everybody needs hope. So it's not as though we have to, we have to know everything about a situation or about an individual we can, from our own experience, recognize the very kinds of things we would be busy praying to God for, whether it's as individuals or corporately. We ought to be praying consistently for, for those things that we need to carry out the responsibilities that God gives us, no matter where that responsibility is, in the family, in the church, whether it's gifting, whether it's wisdom, whatever it happens to be. Because we don't carry out anything except by the strength of God, which he supplies. And yet that strength comes as we seek him in the process, in the moment. It's not as though he just gives it to us, and then we've got it, and we don't ever have to go back to him again. If if, If I were like that preaching, you'd have fired me years ago. Because I'd have, never, I'd have never developed as a preacher. I'd have never become dependent or humble as a preacher. But it is, it is seeking God every day that I prepare, every time I have to preach, recognizing my own weakness, my own ability to screw it up royal, that keeps me before God and demonstrates his faithfulness to strengthen us for whatever task he's called us to do. It is the consistency, the perseverance of bringing our urgent desires and needs before God that really demonstrates whether or not we think they're important. It's said that 
15 minutes a day separates good from excellent. That is that if you practice at something 15 minutes more a day than you normally would, you'll become excellent at it over a period of time. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to immediately add 15 minutes to your prayer life every day. But if you added 15 seconds every day, you would find that prayer life growing steadily and more solid and well-grounded and enjoyable. It would be built into your life as a spiritual discipline and habit that actually begins to become quite natural. Those of you who have ever known Pastor Kirkpatrick, the guy prayed, (laughs) I don't know if he ever stopped. You would be in conversation with him, the next thing you'd know, he'd be dropping his head and he'd he'd be halfway through the prayer before you realized what he was doing. But he was instant in prayer, persevered in it, because he had developed that habit over decades. But those that he came in contact with, who saw him and knew him, who saw literally the grooves in his attic floor where his knees were when he prayed, were deeply influenced by him. Brethren, that's not so far from any one of us, because God desires it from each of us. Prayer that pleases God also is prayer that is made in faith. We read in Mark eleven twenty four that whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. And James 1, 6 reminds us, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. There was a pastor in Houston by the name of, uh, of uh, John Basango, and he describes the day that his, his, his five-year-old daughter came in while he was sitting in a study reading, and um, she asked him, uh, Daddy, will you build me a dollhouse? And like every good father, he said, of course, honey, I promise, I will. And she smiles, and she goes out, and he, just, he goes right back to his reading. And uh, pretty soon, he happened to be facing uh, an outdoor uh, window. Uh, he, he noticed his, his daughter running by with a load of little dishes. And then a few minutes later, she comes back and she's got some dolls. And then she's got some, some little pieces of furniture. He became a little disturbed because all of a sudden he looked out the window and he saw this, this pile of these things over in the corner of the, the yard. So he went to his wife and he said, uh, um, you know, what's going on? What's she doing? Oh, and the wife simply said, oh, you promised to build her a dollhouse. And so uh, she believed you. <laughs> so she's, she's getting everything ready. Well, he says, you could have, he says, it's like I was hit with an atom bomb. He says, I dropped my book right on the floor. He says, I got in the car, I drove down to the lumber yard, I bought everything I thought I would need, I came back, and by the end of that day, I had built my daughter a dollhouse. He says, when I, when I saw her, he says, faith, oh, when I saw her faith, nothing could keep me from carrying out my word. And that's precisely the way God reacts to our faith. The scriptures tell us he responds. 
He will give us what we need, what we require, what we ask for. It's always in accordance with his will. We always have to be submitted to what that might be. Also to the timing. Also to the fact that he might give us something different in response to that prayer. Knowing us as he does. But that's the way God is. He, He blesses, he gives. Now you and I today, we tend to not come to God with a lot of those things. As a matter of fact, our, our, our thing tends to be money. Right? If you need to pay a bill, if you need to buy some food, need to get a car repair, need to buy a little toy, right? whatever it happens to be, is the first thing you do pray? Or is the first thing you do reach in your pocket? Well, the first thing most of us do is reach in our pocket. The simple fact of the matter is that God says, I have given you prayer as the first means by which you ought to come and get what you need. Now certainly, the first thing that he wants us to be praying about are the spiritual needs that we and others have. But it does mean that we can pray about the physical needs, the emotional needs, the psychological needs, the circumstantial needs that people have or that we have. We can bring all those things to him. And it doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to do something ourselves. Okay? We don't just pray that God will pay the bill. I mean, he does expect us to be responsible. Go to our checking account and write the check. If we're hungry, he doesn't bring somebody in the front door unexpectedly and drop a sandwich in our lap. No, he expects us to get up and go to the refrigerator. And to make it. I mean, that's just responsible living. But we're never to do those things without a sense of his involvement in them. And the importance of involving him through prayer. That's why God has given us prayers as the means by which he gives us the things that we need the most. I love, I love the, uh, the, the quote by Asaph. I've mentioned it to you several times before. He says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And I've told you that what that means is that during the time of Asaph, if a king really wanted to bless somebody, he would, he would have them sit up near him at the banquet. And he would say, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And either he would take you know, some, some, some of the best meats and stuff and put it in the man's mouth. Or he might even take a, a handful of jewels and stick it in there. But it was a means of blessing. It was to overflow in joy for the recipient. And this is the kind of truth, however, that erodes in a, in a culture like ours where, where wealth increases and our sense of dependency upon God decreases. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was, uh, well, to use a colloquial expression, poor as a church mouse. Now, Poor, of course, is relative, you know, a relative term. I wasn't poor in terms of uh, how it is reflected in the rest of the world, but in America in those days, it, uh, it seemed pretty close to poverty to me because I literally had to pray about where my next meal was coming because there was no food in the cupboard. I'd been unemployed for six months, close to a year. Things were hard, but I prayed, and God provided <laughs> Literally, people would come and 
knock on the door, we go out, and lo and behold, there was a meal on the doorstep. I know it was you, Karen. I don't know who it was, except that God provided. But you know, as we become rich, as we become affluent, as we become more self-possessed, we don't go to God about those things. And we just become, in our own minds, less dependent on him and more dependent upon ourselves. And that's simply one of the difficulties in learning how to pray in a manner that really pleases God. It's misplaced faith. It's, it's, it's believing that somehow we can deal with it ourselves and don't need to bring God into it. The problem is, is that when we have faith in ourselves, we end up despairing when we face problems that we uh, can't solve, and difficulties that we don't understand, uh, sins that we can't conquer, sicknesses that we can't cure, distressing circumstances we can't change. It's only when we hit that wall that we say, oh, oh yeah, I'll pray. Because we know that God is the one who meets those needs, who deals with those circumstances, who has the power to heal sickness, who can set us free. Another another difficulty is the fact that we don't pray expectantly. When you walk in your house at night, when you hit the light switch, what do you think is going to happen? You expect electricity, right? You do. Because in your mind, you know that there's electricity just sitting in those wires, just just chopping at the bit, waiting for you to f- hit that switch so it can surge up into the light bulb and give you light. That's your expectation. And that ought to be our expectation with God. That literally, he is waiting for us to pray and to bring him the things that concern us because he has such a deep, abiding desire to answer us, to provide for us, to protect us, to care for us, and to shower us with the blessings that he says are ours because we belong to him. True prayer is expectant prayer. The psalmist writes, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious not, until he is gracious to us. Not to see if he's going to be gracious to us, until he is gracious to us, because of the certainty of his promise to us to answer our prayers. David Urey approached the problems, the concerns that he had with his wife in exactly the same way that we ought to approach prayer. Right? He was fervent. He persevered. And he acted in faith. Meanwhile, else would you call the White House? But that's precisely the kinds of character or the kinds of qualities that God wants us to exercise in our prayer as well. To be fervent, to be persevering, and to believe him. Brethren, I hope that you can grasp these simple things 
and see them affect the way in which you pray on a daily basis and see it increase the maturity and the depth and the joy that you experience as you do so. Let's pray. Our Father, we are uh, always grateful for the teaching of your word. Thank you for the scattering of its truth about prayer from the beginning to the very end of scripture. There is much there that we can learn. This is but a small portion. We pray that you might take it and encourage us and uh, deepen our prayer lives in a manner that that really does bring forth for your glory the kind of uh, praying men and women who are used of you to move and advance your kingdom forward and to increase in Christ-likeness by your grace uh, to such a degree that it is honest, uh, that it is obvious to others so that they ask us to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Do these things so that we might bear witness of him, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.